grace and peace, uh, beloved. And welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast that kicks off our weekly pattern of learn, live, love, and lead. It's our hope and prayer that each week is enriching and empowering for you uh, as you walk and journey your faith this week, and that these, these podcasts will help you on your journey of faith as we learn the Holy Scriptures, as we learn the stories of Jesus. We're in our Lenten sermon series, Dying to Live, and that theme seems to weave throughout the last chapters of Mark as we get closer to Jesus's death and resurrection. And we are getting closer as today we are looking at Mark chapter 14. Now, chapter 14 is a big and pivotal chapter, and I'm going to do the best I can to give us a survey of of this chapter. It is 72 verses that capture Jesus uh, celebrating Passover and then Eucharist, what we call Holy Communion. It it captures uh, Jesus and his disciples leaving the city and and following uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays with great distress. And finally, Jesus is arrested and tried before the Sanhedrin. But it all begins with a meal and an anointing. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. uh, And we're going to look at these uh, section by section as best we can. The first section is verses 1 through 11. It's an introduction and a foreshadowing of what is to come. First, uh, verses 1 and 2, we have the plot to arrest Jesus and have him killed that is introduced to us. The chief priests and legal experts were told through cunning tricks or acts of deceit uh, are seeking to find this way to have Jesus arrested and put to death. We're told, though, that in verse 2 that they decide it shouldn't happen during the Passover festival seems that otherwise there would be an uproar, the text says, or a disturbance. You see, at Passover, there are large crowds of people who don't live in Jerusalem, have come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so at Passover, both crowds and this religious excitement happen in Jerusalem, and it makes it ripe for rebellion. A tinderbox that must be managed delicately. It seems like uh, the leaders, uh, the legal experts and chief priests want to be very careful at how they put an end to this rebel rouser, Jesus. Then in verse 3 through 9, we get another foreshadowing and a setting up of the plot that will unfold. Jesus is in in the town of Bethany, just on the other side of the Mount Olives, in the house of Simon, uh, a man we are told who had a skin disease. Jesus is having a meal with someone who had a skin disease. That should tell us something, doesn't it? That once again, Jesus finds himself among those who are unclean by religious standards. And this verse is reminding us how the ministry and fellowship, how the grace and love of Jesus is open to all, even those who are cast out by society and religion. In this meal, in this meal, we are told of a woman who approaches Jesus with a vase made of alabaster. 
Alabaster is a very expensive product to make a vase out of. Um, and this alabaster vase is filled with pure nard, a very, very expensive perfume. The text even tells us that it's expensive. This is an extravagant thing, not only to have pure nard, but to have it in an alabaster jar. She breaks the jar and pours this ointment, this perfume, this pure nard over Jesus' head. And it seems to cause quite a commotion. You see, the disciples are none too pleased that this woman would waste 300 denarii worth of perfume, a year's salary. But Jesus rebukes them in in verse 6 and tells them to leave her alone. Why do you make trouble for her, he says. He tells them that she has done a good thing for him, a beautiful thing, in fact. So no, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, we're told the importance of caring for the poor. And at first glance, it could seem like Jesus saying, don't worry about the poor, worry about me. But in fact, Jesus doesn't deny the importance of serving the poor when he affirms the woman's gift that she has done what she could. She spent everything on Jesus. And for us today, to spend everything on Jesus most oftentimes means and looks like giving to the poor, ensuring that there is sustainable housing and food for everyone. So to give to the poor is right. The woman's deed is also right. It's just a different type of right. Jesus says that she has done a beautiful thing. Kalos is the Greek. And and the word here is translated as, as good. It literally means morally right or even aesthetically pleasing. The two definitions seem to be able to be used interchangeably. We do the same thing in English. When we see something powerful or morally good, we have at times said that that is beautiful. Jesus says she has done what she could. Another way of thinking of it is what she had, she gave. What she had, the power in her to do, she did. And this is beautiful because she has invested herself in it, in the ministry of Jesus. Then in in verse 10 and 11, as we finish up this section, we're told of Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve how he approaches the chief priests to give Jesus up to them. The text says in verse 11 that when the chief priests heard of Judas's desire, they are delighted and promise to give him money so that they can begin to plan their work. These passages, verse 1 through 11, uh, a contrast uh, in different ways of preparing for Jesus' death that now introduce the passion narrative that's beginning to unfold. And in Mark, uh, they also lead us, the readers on this side of the cross, to think about our own response to Jesus's, to God's, excuse me, God's costly gift. It's Jesus's as well. So we have a series of plots that are all pointing to the same thing. 
the chief priests and scribes on one hand and Judas on the other, are preparing for Jesus' death by planning to kill him. And in between these two parts of these conspiracy accounts, we have the story of the woman who pours ointment on Jesus' head. Unwittingly, she too was preparing for Jesus' death, anointing his body for burial. We have the contrast between the beauty of her deed and the ugliness and hostility of the plots to portray Jesus. Now, there has been a growing conflict that is, has been building since chapter 8. If you recall in, in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus predicts his passion, his suffering. And then in verse 11, 12, and 13, we have the theme even more dominant while Jesus is in Jerusalem. The conflict is, is moving towards a crescendo, a, a building up to a point. We also, if we're reading carefully, you can see that Jesus, excuse me, Judas falls into a pattern of misunderstanding and failure. It's a pattern that Mark characterizes with Jesus's family and his friends. It's a pattern especially seen with Jesus's disciples, most specifically the 12. And in this way, Judas is no different than the rest of them and maybe even the rest of us. The next section is verse 12 through 26, where we have Jesus celebrating the, the Passover festival, the festival of liberation, where they remember that the, the, the spirit of death passed over the homes of the enslaved Israelites as they then left in, uh, enslavement in Egypt and found their way uh, eventually into the promised land. Jesus is celebrating the Passover festival with his disciples, and there he tells them of their pending betrayal. Verse 13 through 16 give us this odd preparation as, uh, for this meal. Jesus tells his disciples, who aren't named in Mark, to go into the city and look for a man carrying a water jar. That He will lead them to the place, the room, where they can celebrate the Passover meal. Then verse 17 through 21, we have the celebrating of the Passover meal uh, when Jesus also then tells them uh, that they will betray him. Actually, one of them will betray him and the one who is with them. He says, someone eating with me in verse 19. It's quick and it's short. We're told the disciples are sad and distressed. And one by one, they ask Jesus, is it me? Or my translation says, it's not me, is it? They seem to be unsure of how they respond to this moment of crisis. Tension is building yet again. Finally then, in verse 22 through 25, Jesus institutes what we call Eucharist, the Last Supper, Holy Communion. Well, we don't get much language or theology around it. Mark is quite simple here. But if we pay attention, we can see that there are four movements with the bread. Jesus took it, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. He tells them that the broken bread 
he is giving them is his body. The same four movements are with the cup. He took the cup, gave thanks, blessed it, and gave it to them. This is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Mark follows early Christian worship habits as laid out in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 26, that the earliest followers of Jesus often shared a memorial meal when they gathered together. This is that moment. This is that scene. This is that meal. Well, verse 26 has this tense scene ending on a high note. With all the treachery that's been planned, the confusion of the anointing, uh, the mysticism of how they will find this large upper room, the dismay and sadness of, of a pending betrayal, and the metaphor of Jesus' broken body and blood shed, it ends on a high note with singing songs of praise. Verse 27 through 31 is a small section, but important. As Jesus and his disciples are making their way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them that all of them will falter in their faithfulness to him, but that after he is raised up, he will go before them to Galilee. Now, biblical scholars hypothesize that the, the first uh, audience, the first listeners of this gospel, Mark's gospel, the first gospel, they may have been a group of Christians who lived in the Galilee region and that they have encountered the risen Lord or at the very least the gospel of the risen Lord there in Galilee. We move on to the next section uh, 32 through 42. And this section is, is filled with emotions again from Jesus, uh, emotions from Jesus now, uh, and begins the isolation of Jesus. You see, on their way to Mount Olives, they go through Gethsemane and they are invited by Jesus uh, to rest while he prays. Stop here, wait for me while I pray. He takes Peter, James, and John with him into the garden, we presume, deeper down. And Jesus, his prayer here, the text tells us, is filled with despair and anxiety. Peter, James, and John uh, seem to be Jesus' closest friends, and they get to witness Jesus' prayerful struggle. You see, part of his role as the Christ seems to be one who suffers and Jesus agonizes over this as he faces his passion, his impending death. In verse 35 and 36, Jesus asks God to spare him the suffering he expects. He has very human here. And this echoes Mark chapter 9, verse 23 when Jesus said, all things are possible for those who have faith. You remember, Jesus said, spare him from his suffering if it is possible. And then in Mark 10, verse 27, when Jesus said, it's impossible with human beings, but not with God. 
all things are possible for God. You see this juxtaposition, this, this humanity of Jesus saying, hey, if this couldn't happen, that would be great. If it is possible, and I have faith that in you, O oh God, all things are possible. In this prayer, Mark records Jesus speaking the, the word for father in Aramaic, the language we believe that Jesus spoke, Abba. Many scholars and pastors have noted throughout the centuries that this is a very intimate word, not formal like father. In fact, it says Abba, father, but close and intimate. Abba is like daddy or dad or papa. This prayer is powerful and quite human. And this prayer makes a powerful turn with however, or even but. All is the Greek word there. Jesus says, not my will, not what I want, some translations say, but what you want. The turn in Jesus's prayer is Jesus embracing God's will which has echoes from uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 35, when Jesus says, whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. This prayer is, is a prayer that I don't know about you, but I struggle and try to, pray, try to pray as often as I can. I know what I want. And if it's possible, God, it'd be great if I could have what I want. Because, hey, all things are possible with you, God. But then to move, to make that turn, to say however, or but, not my will, but your will be done. Oh, what it would look like for me to do God's will. Well, this section closes when Jesus finds his disciples, even Peter, James, and John asleep, unable to stay awake, uh, to stay by his side. It happens three times. He finds them. And then finally in verse 42, he says, get up, let's go. Look, here comes my betrayer. In verse 43 through 52, we have the arrest of Jesus. It seems a, a large mob carrying swords and clubs, the text says, have come to get Jesus. It's interesting that the chief priests and legal experts, the, the elders, they all keep a distance well, the mob enters in and Judas kisses Jesus. Now, this, this betrayal is full of irony. He betrays Jesus with a gesture of friendship. And Jesus responds to this frantic and armed mob with a calm acceptance of his impending and violent end. In verse 47, we have this, this bystander who is unidentified in Mark who strikes the high priest's Caiaphas's slave. Here it seems to be a detail that is ignored. It, it happens and we, we move on. And, and that's just it. It's just there. And then Jesus doesn't say anything. He points out the irony that they have come with clubs and swords to arrest him like some sort of outlaw, he says. I've been amongst you all for this past week teaching in the temple. 
Well, then we have the final section, verse, verse 53 through 65. After uh, he goes before the Sanhedrin, it seems that Jesus is, is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where we're told that Peter follows from a distance. He's the only disciple who follows Jesus. They all are scattered, but he follows yet from a distance and stays in the courtyard of Caiaphas, where he can listen and keep watch. And here, while Jesus is being tried, Peter then is approached and he denies that he is a follower, a disciple of Jesus three times. And he's reminded that Jesus had predicted that as the rooster crows. I wonder what this huge section, this chapter, chapter 14 might mean and be for you. As we trace this day and a half of Jesus's life, as we read and think through these experiences, what it means for you to give all you have and all you are, all the power within you to Jesus. What does it mean for you to serve people the way Jesus called you to serve with all that you are? What does it mean to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus when you take bread and the cup? When you celebrate with thanksgiving in your heart the Eucharist, the Last Supper, Holy Communion. How in our lives we may have turned away or fled or even betrayed the gospel of Jesus Christ. How we can turn back to it. Maybe that happens in our prayers when we pray, hey God, this is what I really want. And I know if it's in your, you can do it because all things are possible in you. But, but not my will, your will be done. Well, I pray that as you read through chapter 14 with your Life Together groups uh, and as we prepare for worship uh, next Sunday, that all of this might resonate deeply within your heart. Grace and peace, beloved friends. 